This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you ready to study God's Word together this morning? Turn to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. I'm not sure if you saw the 2014 theatrical release called Exodus, Gods and Kings. But if you did, you know there is some pretty wild stuff going on in the book of Exodus. It's too bad that most of the movie isn't true. (laughs) Um, Christian Bale might have made a really buff Moses, but... um, he actually presented him a lot more like William Wallace in Braveheart than the uh, 80-year-old senior citizen Moses we see in the Bible. <clears throat> so watch it if you want, but don't trust the movie because the directors take fairly significant um, liberty and what I guess is for the sake of dramatic and fantastical effect. But all you have to do is read Exodus chapter 1 through 15 and then watch the movie and compare and contrast And you just see how far off the movie actually is. But here's my struggle. My struggle with theatrical releases, especially when they seek to recount events uh, from the Old Testament, is that you don't have to sensationalize it. You don't have to augment it. If you just simply look at the events as they actually happened, it's pretty wild stuff. I mean, I, I'm saying this at the beginning of our message today. What, what we see unfold in Exodus chapters 7 through 11, it is mind-boggling to the human mind. It is wild, to say the least. Because here, here's what I would really love to see happen. I, I would love to see a big-budget a-list production of the unadulterated events in Exodus 7 through 11. And I promise you, it would be really entertaining. It would also be really sad. Because what we see in Exodus, Exodus chapters 7 through 11 is we, we see the recounting of the 10 plagues against Egypt. Now, if you've grown up in Sunday school or you've been in Christianity for a long time, you've You've probably read these chapters numerous times or you've had vacation Bible school stories about them. If you're new to the faith, you might read these chapters and think, what in the world is going on here? And how in the world does it apply to my life today? But what's actually going on here is that God is going to extreme lengths to make sure that these people Both his people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians knew exactly who he is. Now, here's what's exactly going on. So I'm going to give you the uh, the basic rundown. So God has promised to liberate his people. But over the course of the next five chapters, there's going to be this roller coaster, deja vu-like showdown between God and Pharaoh. Where Moses demands that Pharaoh sets his people free. But then Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God sending a plague of epic proportion against the Egyptian land. And then Pharaoh afterwards hardening his heart and refusing to let his people go. Then 
Wash, rinse, dry, repeat, do it all over again. That's what we see from Exodus 7 all the way to Exodus 11. This happens 10 times. And with each additional plague, they grow in increasing, increasing intensity. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know what I'm talking about when I say that it's a pretty wild ride. And so this morning, whether you are new to the faith or whether you are a seasoned disciple of Jesus, if you have eyes to see this morning, and if you have ears to hear, you just might catch a glimpse of Yahweh God like you've never seen before. And as you listen to God speak through his word this morning, you might actually for the first time not just listen to it, you may actually hear him speak to you. All right, so I know there's been a lot of intrigue this morning already. There was in first service about the, the headline in your listening guide today. How in the world do we find gospel application from the 10 plagues? Well, it's a great question, so we're going to try and answer it in this morning's message. Now, I'm going to try and make this morning's message manageable. We're going to cover five chapters, but I'm only going to focus in primarily on verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7. And here's why. Because those 13 verses, in essence, form the foundational order for what takes place over the course of the next five chapters. Everything that I'm going to show you in these 13 verses, you see play out over and over again throughout the 10 plagues. Okay? So I'm going to read Exodus 7, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read this in, in one swoop, and then we're going to see how we can decipher the 10 plagues for us today. All right. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So how in the world do we find gospel application from the episodes of the ten plagues? Here's the first one. This is going to be very quick. We should marvel over his undeserved patience with us. Now, this is important as we get started here, because do you remember how we left Moses at the end of Exodus chapter 6? Do you remember? Moses was insecure. 
in his calling. He was arguing with God repeatedly. He, he even blamed God at the end of chapter 5. He, he really was characterized by doubt, unbelief. In fact, God went through this through multiple cycles with Moses uh, through the first few chapters of Exodus. But look again at the very beginning of chapter 7. This is so important to the narrative. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. This is such good news. Even in the midst of all of Moses' failures and inadequacies, God does not pull back his calling. God does not pull back his commission. As a matter of fact, God tells him this time that he will be like God to Pharaoh, meaning that when Moses speaks to Pharaoh, it will be God speaking through him. I love this. God was so patient with Moses. He didn't have to be, but he was so patient with him. And the reality is, as we are on mission with Jesus today, and as we walk with God today, God is still patient with us. For those who have been saved and we're a part of God's covenant community, he he still extends his hand of patience to us when we're slow in learning our lessons or Maybe when we return to a besetting sin or when we continually ignore that prompting to reach out to our neighbor. God continually extends his undeserved patience to us just like he did to Moses. This is important to get us started this morning. Now here's a second application from the text this morning. We should trust his unseen plan of salvation. Going through the text, he says, he says in verse 4, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. What is God doing here? God is reaffirming his promise to liberate from slavery um, his people's captivity. But they haven't seen anything yet, right? I mean, they've heard this from God multiple times, but they haven't seen anything actually happen yet. Now, if you or I were in their shoes, wouldn't we wonder, God, really? I mean, you said, you said again, but yet we see nothing. As a matter of fact, things have even gotten worse for us, as we saw in chapter Five last week. But, but look at what God says before verse 4. Yeah, God promised deliverance, but beforehand, he's going to do something else. He says he's got to do two things. One, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And two, he's going to multiply his signs and wonders across the land of Egypt. And here's where we, what we see here. We see that in the plans of God, God works both deliberately and intentionally. God deliberates over what he's going to do, and then he intentionally carries out his plans. And he has an intention and a purpose behind every single, uh, every single work that he 
does. And we're going to see that play out like what it, we're going to see exactly what it was in a moment. God's going to multiply his signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders are the ten plagues. So over the next five chapters, God literally brings devastation upon Egypt. And he does it time and time again from the air, from the water, and from land. He even afflicts human beings with boils. He turns the Nile River into blood, crippling their source of water and commerce. And the most comical of the plagues, he, he floods the land with frogs. They were literally everywhere. He sent gnats and flies to overrun the air. In another plague, he killed all the Egyptian livestock, destroying their food source. He caught, again, he made people sick with boils. He sent the worst hailstorm on Egypt in history. And then God filled the land with locusts and later sent darkness where it covered the Egyptian streets. And though it hasn't happened yet in the narrative up to chapter 11, he threatened the 10th and seminal plague the death of every firstborn child. You see, the people couldn't see it yet. But God promises to deliver his people. He promises to save them. But before he does, he's going to multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But throughout the plagues, the people do get a foretaste of that salvation. Because in five of the plagues, the Lord shields the Israelites from the effects. See this very quickly. In chapter 8, in the fourth plague, the flies, in verse 22, this is what the text tells us. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. If you go into chapter 9, when the Egyptian livestock dies, Verse 4 says, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Just a few verses later, when God sends the hailstorm upon Egypt. In verse uh, 26, the scriptures say, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. You go down to chapter 10, when darkness covers Egypt, there is an exception here. In verse 23, the scriptures say they didn't, the, the Egyptians did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And in forecasting, threatening the final plague, the death of the firstborn, in verse 7 of chapter 11, the scripture says, Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, even through the plagues, though ultimate deliverance has not taken place yet, God gives a foretaste of that salvation by protecting his people in the midst of some of these plagues. Not all of them, but some of them. Friend, the Christian's experiences here are similar to the Israelites in our day in this way. In this sinful world, in this broken world, where calamity oftentimes strikes, we're not always shielded from every disastrous effect that befalls this world. Oftentimes, Christians suffer right along 
with non-Christians. But there are times as a Christ follower in this world that God gives us favor individually and corporately that's beyond our comprehension. And every time God shields us and every time God protects us in any specific moment, what that is a reminder of is the coming salvation, the ultimate redemption that we will experience when we see him face to face. Just because you can't always see God's plan does not mean that he's not working it behind the scenes. You can't see the wind, but you feel and see its impact. You may not be able to see all the gospel promises that God has for you in Christ Jesus right now, but we should trust his unseen plan of salvation just as the Israelites could trust what they perceived as being unseen. A third gospel application we can learn from the plagues is this. We should revere his unrivaled name above all others. We should revere his unrivaled name above all others. Now you go down to verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now this is important because God's simply repeating what he's already said a couple of times up to this point in the book of Exodus. And he's going to repeat it several more times throughout the book of Exodus. God is all about his name. He's all about his name. And that's the purpose behind the deliberation. That's the purpose behind the intentionality. That's the purpose behind the unforeseen plan of salvation that God is working here. Is that he is working everything here in order to make a great name for himself. And to prove that he is the God of all gods. Now, this is significant because of who Pharaoh is. You remember Pharaoh in chapter 5 in verse 2 when Moses and Aaron first approached him and said to let my people go. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I will not let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. This is significant. Because at this particular point in Egyptian history, the Pharaoh would have been like God to the Egyptians. It's one of the reasons why he wore the, the headdress. If you've seen some of those golden headdresses from history with the head of the cobra over his forehead, it's because the Egyptians had a real big fascination with snakes, which means that I probably couldn't have been a good Egyptian at this point in time, but I digress. And snakes had almost a godlike nature and a godlike fascination for the Egyptians. Pharaoh, because of his position, was like a god to them. And you put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. You've spent your whole life. Nobody tells you what to do. Nobody. You are the one who tells everybody else what to do. You tell everybody else how to live. Everyone else answers to you. And now... You're hearing about these slaves, God? Really, he's no match for me. And so God is passionate here about making sure that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and yes, even his people, the Israelites, know his unrivaled name and that he is not a God with whom you can contend 
In verse 5, this is not the only place. I, I put this in your listening guide today, but you follow the narrative through. God says over and over and over again over the next five chapters that the reason why I'm doing this or the reason why I'm commanding you to go is so that you may know that I am Yahweh. So that the people may know that I am God. And so here's what we have. We have one of the matches of the ages here set. God versus Pharaoh. This is where the climax is building. It's where in our movie, the musical score crescendos. It's when the eye of the tiger starts playing in the background. This is Skywalker versus Vader. This is Thanos versus the Hulk. This is the Sox versus the evil empire. This is Harry Potter versus Vault. I'll stop there. You get the point. This is the showdown. And what's actually going on here is it is ultimately Yahweh God versus all other gods. Or might we say all other so-called gods. You see, Egypt was a pluralistic haven. Not completely unlike our American culture today. Egypt had a lot of gods. According to commentators, Egypt had about 80 major deities. And they were all clustered around three great natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile River, the land, and the sky. And if you look at the plagues, the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. The final four were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. So God put his glory on full display by judging these false gods. All the earth would know that he is a God, that he is God above all, the all-time undisputed, undefeated, unrivaled Lord of all. As a matter of fact, in just a couple of books later from Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. This is crucial in recounting back to the Exodus event. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So significant was the moment of the Exodus that if you read through the Old Testament, you will see the Old Testament writers recounting back, hearkening back continually to the Exodus experience to remind the people of God that he will be true to his promises and there is nothing that he will not do in defending you on your behalf. The whole teleological end, the telos, the end, the whole teleological end of all of human experience is to know the one true God. 
Jesus actually says as much. Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, in John 17, he's about to go to the cross. Jesus actually defines for us what eternal life is. And what Jesus does not tell us, Jesus does not tell us that eternal life is about going to heaven only. Jesus does not tell us that, going, that, that eternal life is about being reunited with my loved ones, even though that will be a huge gift to those of us who are in Christ. He does not tell us that going to heaven is about having a perfected version of our favorite experiences here on earth. And he doesn't tell us that going to heaven and being in eternity is about simply lying back, taking naps, naked, strumming golds of golden harps with wings like cherubim but instead here's how Jesus defines eternal life he says this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent this begs a question this morning do you know him do you know the one true God. Do you know Jesus Christ? And we know him by entering into covenant with him by confession and faith to the gospel and repentance of our sins. All right. We should revere his unrivaled name above all others. We see that play out through the 10 plagues. Fourth, we should obey his unchanging commands without question. Now, this is significant because if you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, again, just press reset, same story. Moses argued with God a lot, Moses rebutted God a lot. And there were times, yes, when Moses did obey God. But there were other times that Moses really questioned obedience to God. Now that's significant for our understanding here. Because look at what happens in verse 6. Something has shifted. There's been an adjustment in Moses and Aaron's hearts. Because in verse 6 it says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And then when you go down in the text in verse 10, after God commanded Aaron to take his staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Here's the reality when you make your way through the next five chapters, and I would actually encourage you to do this. There's no way we could cover all five chapters of, of, of this text in this short amount of time this morning. But if you read these five chapters in its totality, you are going to be hard-pressed to find a single instance where Moses or Aaron rebutted God. You will not find a single instance where, God, where Moses or Aaron disobeyed or did not do as the Lord had commanded. Something switched. And friend, this is exactly what happens at salvation. This is exactly what happens when we turn our lives over to God and we are redeemed. What used to be foolishness to us in following God now becomes the only logical thing that we should do. 
Now there's rub here because we're still sinful people. And so we don't obey God perfectly. However, when God has done something in our hearts and changed our lives, He changes our disposition towards His commands. And so now His commands are not to be argued against. His commands are not seen as something that we should try to figure out how we can convince that we should do otherwise. We should simply accept them and receive them as they are and then seek to obey them. But then I also want you to see this about obedience here. Moses and Aaron's obedience was not simply about Moses and Aaron. I think too often we have this idea about obedience to God as simply the vertical dimension of our faith. It's just all about obeying God and doing what God has asked me to do or to follow without any thought of anyone else around us. But what Moses' obedience and Aaron's obedience shows us is that their obedience had an effect on a lot of people. We don't know exactly how many Israelites were living during this time. But we know from chapter 1 that it was a lot. Their obedience and following God's command would ultimately lead to the liberation of thousands upon thousands of their fellow Hebrew brethren. And brothers and sisters, in a smaller way, when when we obey God's commands to us to love our neighbor or to share his gospel or to forgive our brother or sister, or to go cross-cultural on a mission experience, or to leverage our resources for the sake of His glory, when we obey His commands, that obedience goes far beyond our own walk with God. And so what we learn here from the text, from the ten plagues, surprisingly even, is that we should obey His unchanging commands without question. Number five, we should recognize his unquestionable power over all competing spectacles. Now here's where I want to make the the sermon this morning very personal for me. This is probably my favorite interaction in this episode. Because in chapter 7, verse 11, here's what we see. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, they also did the same by their secret arts. What? Then taking a staff and making it become a snake. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now again, this is why I am really glad that God did not birth me in the middle of of the B.C. era in Egypt and ask me to go before Pharaoh. Because the moment he told me that the staff would become a snake, I would have been out. That was it for me. Like, God, it was a good run, you know. Would have loved to have obeyed, but it just can't happen. Anyone who knows me and knows me well knows exactly what I'm talking about. What's remarkable here? is that the magicians and the sorcerers here in Egypt 
with all of their superstitions and all of the dark magic that they participated in. God in his sovereignty allows them to do the exact same thing that he had done through Moses and Aaron. Now, commentators and scholars disagree and differ on exactly what is going on here. Some just simply think that it was um, human magic or optical illusion. I side with those who would, who would say that this is actually the work of Satan going on here. That these people were involved in some real dark stuff. And God is allowing Satan to perform some works here as well. But don't miss this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. If you go through the rest of the account, what you'll find is that this wasn't the only time this happened. When the Nile River turned to blood, we see in chapter 7, verse um, 11, that God allowed them, uh, sorry, in chapter 7, verse 22, God allowed the, the magicians there to do the exact same thing. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. If you go down to chapter 8, in verse 7, with the frogs, exactly the same thing. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. If you go down to verse 18 of chapter 8, here's where it gets interesting. With the gnats, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In God's sovereignty, he allowed through a couple of these episodes for there to be a competing spectacle. And the reality is on the ground level, the competing spectacle looked just as awesome and just as good as what God himself was doing if you fast forward to today, think about the competing spectacles in our lives. There are so many spectacles vying for your attention and vying for your fascination and amazement. For some of us, it's social media. We can't get enough clickbait. We can't watch enough dogs learning to play the piano, right? For some of us, it's fashion and the way we look and our appearance. We are inordinately consumed with what other people think about us. For some of us, it's money, career, advancement, possessions. It might even be the goodness of your own family. It could be romance, the pursuit of marriage, or even the inordinate longing for marriage and romance. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of competing spectacles. And what we can be so convinced of as we are clicking or as we are pursuing or as we are consuming, we can become convinced that this spectacle is just as good or even better than God himself. But what we don't recognize is that when all is said and done, God will swallow it up just like he did the staff of the magicians 
So I wonder this morning if you would recognize the fleeting nature of that which consumes you the most. What's significant here about this word swallow is that we'll fast forward into the text in a few weeks. We're going to get to the crossing of the Red Sea when the people of God actually are liberated and they are freed. And at that moment when the waters fall down upon the Egyptians, the waters swallow them up in drowning, right? And when you get to the New Testament and you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible tells us that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has swallowed up death our greatest enemy. We should recognize here from the 10 plagues that we should recognize God's unquestionable power over all competing spectacles. At some point, we have to come to the end of our spectacles and see, no, 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 the finger of God. The finger of God is so much better. Lastly, a last application I want us to see here from the 10 plagues is that we should be ready. We should bend our unrepentant hearts to his unending mercy. You get to the end of this episode and you look at verse 13. And verse 13 pretty much sums up the pattern over the next five chapters. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Oftentimes, we as human beings demand that God do a sign. I mean, how many times have we as Christians even said, well, if God would just show me a sign, if he would just spell it out in the sky, or if he would just allow the bottle to, when I spin it, to just land on the right space on the board to tell me what to do, there could be those of you watching this morning and, and you have even thought the same thing. Like you're so skeptical of this whole Christian thing. I get it. A lot of us were at some point. And we can even convince ourselves that if God were to just do what he did back then, then I would believe. But be careful. Be careful. Because here in chapter 7... Pharaoh just saw a miraculous sign. And it says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And over the next 10 episodes of these plagues, God brings utter devastation upon Egypt. These weren't just momentary inconveniences for the Egyptians. They literally devastated their their way of life. And even in seeing those, In every episode, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Even after seeing the miraculous works of God, a sign is not what we need. Belief is what we need. Surrender is what we need. Repentance is what we need. Ultimately, looking at the title of today's message, ultimately, we need to know God. We need to see the greatness, the power, and might I even say the severity of God. Because when we see Him as He truly is, there's really no other response than to bend our knee in repentance before Him. 
Now, it's important for us to understand what's going on with this word repent. Because throughout the episode, yes, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and not relent and not repent and turn towards God. There are a couple of moments where you thought, oh, 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 we're so close. Because there are a couple of moments in the episode, and if you read through, you'll see them, where he relents a little bit. And you sense a little bit of remorse because the circumstances were so severe. But what we start recognizing is that any sense of remorse he felt was because of the discomfort of the circumstances and wanting them to be relieved rather than a true heart of repentance and belief and acknowledgement of who God is. And this kind of allows us to think about our own lives for a moment. You know, oftentimes as human beings, we feel bad about what we've done. We feel bad about what we've said. We feel remorse because inside of us, innate, we understand that it's wrong. But there's a difference between feeling remorse and turning in repentance. Remorse is just, I, I feel bad about what I keep doing. Repentance says, I see what God has commanded. I see what this is doing to my life. I'm turning and I'm leaving this and I'm not coming back. That's repentance. And this is clearly displayed in even what it means to be a Christian, right? So when we are born... We are born conceived in sin. And so the Bible tells us that we are brought forth in sin. And so that means that when we're born, we are actually birthed walking away from God. So we're going to say God's over here. We're walking away from God. And that means that everything I do in life, I'm doing it for my pleasure, for my purposes. I'm living my life. I don't want to be told what to do. But then there's a moment where we hear the gospel and we come to grips with the greatness and the holiness of who God is and we come to grips with the brokenness and the sinfulness of my own heart and I see the provision that God has made through his son Jesus Christ who is the ultimate Moses and the ultimate liberator and the ultimate redeemer and when I see that how that chasm is bridged I've been walking this way my whole life, but I collide with the gospel and now I turn back and I start walking towards God. That's what it means to repent. It means a 180. Now I know my brothers and sisters are in here and you're saying, I get that, but I've been a Christian for five years. I've been a Christian for 10 years or 30 years. And pastor, I continue to struggle with sin in my life today. I guess I truly haven't repented. We are still broken. We are still sinful. There's a fundamental difference between sinning, walking away from God, and sinning, walking towards God. We've repented. We continue to walk in repentance. We continue to walk in repentance until we see Jesus face to face. But there is a difference there's a difference between sinning outside of Christ and sinning inside of Christ. When we sin inside of Christ, we have provision for our sin. And he cleanses us and he keeps us on the path walking towards God. When we sin outside of Christ, we have no advocate. We have no redeemer. 
and we just continue to walk deeper and deeper into destruction away from God. And so this morning, I wonder, are you seeing yourself here? 14 different times in Exodus 7 through 11, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Though he had seen so many miraculous works of God, there's someone watching this this morning. There's someone here this morning. Your heart continues to be hardened and your apathy continues to grow. And God is patient with you. He's so patient with you. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't assume that because God hasn't fulfilled His promise yet. Don't think for a moment that because God has not sent His Son back to earth yet. Don't think for a moment that because Jesus has not come to judge the living and the dead yet, that somehow God is slow or somehow that God is forgotten or that God is not real. He is not, he is not forgotten. His perceived slowness is for your benefit because He's so patient because He does not desire that you would perish. And so might today be the day that you repent and you fall at his feet of unending mercy. Father, I pray today that through the text of Scripture that you would help us see you, that we would know you because, Father, we are so forgetful Our memories are so short. And Lord, on any given day, what we need is not an explanation. What we need is not all the answers. What we need is to see and know you. And so, Father, bridge the chasm in our hearts. The chasm that exists where we we believe that, but then in the momentary circumstances, We struggle to believe it. Father, in the name of Jesus, bridge that chasm. And Father, for anyone who is listening or or watching today, if they don't know Jesus, if they haven't come to you, oh God, may today be the day that they fall on their knees, that they would bend their knee to the unending mercy of God that's in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.